You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at the Tuxedo Cat Adelaide on 10th of March 2013. It's time to reverse the polarity with Splendid Chats, the podcast that goes to 11. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Welcome to our very special oh, Adelaide show. We're in Adelaide. We are in Adelaide. I mean, you can't. You can probably tell by the change in the sound of the podcast. <laughs> it just sounds more South Australian, Great Australian bitey. Because we are here during the Adelaide Fringe Festival, um, which is part of Mad March, the local term for the fact that everything that happens in Adelaide happens at the same time. Hey! Because why would you want to spread those things out and enjoy all of them when you could have to force yourself to pick just one? So today we're talking about John Pertwee. We're talking about family. We have fabulous guests. Should we get some background into the period we're talking about? I think we will. Petra, why don't you hit the fast return switch and tell us where we're going this month? Today we're going back to the period of 1970 to 1974, a time when everything went brown, unless it was burnt orange. It's a time of depressing news stories, including the massacre at the Munich Olympics, the 1973 oil crisis, and the Apollo 17 mission was the last time man would walk on the moon. In 1974, President Richard Nixon resigned while being investigated for his role in the Watergate scandal, an incident that still affects us, as the suffix gate is irritatingly added to any scandal today. Popular fads of the time include streaking, CB radio, hot pants, flares, Holly Hobby, Hijacking Planes and Vietnam. In music, Marvin Gaye releases What's Going On. We see the rise of glam rock. Barry White starts releasing albums and Let It Be becomes the 12th and final album for the Beatles. It's a big period for technology. The first portable calculators appeared in Japan in 1970. On April 3rd, 1973, Motorola's Martin Cooper becomes the first person to make a call on a mobile phone. And in 1972, ARPANET contractor Ray Tomlinson picked the at symbol from the computer keyboard to denote sending messages from one computer to another. Legend has it that the first email message sent was quartier. A message as true and relevant now as it was then. HBO is launched in 1972, becoming America's first pay TV channel. And the UK was now broadcasting in colour, although most people were still watching in black and white. The domestic microwave oven finally takes off, with sales of 40,000 in 1970 rising to 1 million by 1975. Microwave fans, however, will remember that the first commercially available microwave oven was actually the Raider Range, released in 1947. It was nearly two metres tall, weighed 340 kilograms, and cost about 5,000 US dollars, over $50,000 in today's money. Closer to home, Gough Whitlam wins the federal elections in 1972 and 1974, so he must be pleased. I hope nothing bad happens. And Darwin is rocked by two devastating events. The first is Cyclone Tracy on Christmas Day, 1974. The second is the release of the single Santa Never Made It Into Darwin by Bill and Boyd in February 1975. It went to number one. Thanks, Petra. Thank you, Petra. So the 70s had so much going on, and of course, Doctor Who was going from strength to strength. To talk about Doctor Who, we have some fabulous guests. Indeed, we do. Petra, why don't you introduce our first guest? 
Our first guest is an actor-slash-director-slash-dancer and producer. Her dance theatre show Polecats recently toured the country, stopping at the Sydney Opera House, Queensland Performing Arts Centre, Adelaide Festival Centre and Gasworks in Melbourne. She appeared in two Australian horror movies, The Barbadook, starring Essie Davis, and the Molly Ringwald meets Kylie classic, Cut. She's in the final year of writing her PhD, Adelaide Dance Music Culture, late 80s to early 90s, Radelaide and the Second Summer of Love. Adelaide TV audiences would recognise her as the lady with the annoying noise in the back of the car from her long-running Ultratune commercial. But we prefer to think of her as Carmel, the ultrasound technician from Blue Healers. She's Kathy Adame. <laughs> Uh, you, you looked a bit shocked there. You, you were Carmel, the ultrasound technician, weren't you? Or we just yeah, I was, up? but it was McLeod's daughters. Oh, oh awkward. We'll, we'll let it that in post. Oh. I don't the think they did job. a lot of... If it was Blue Healers, I probably would have had to have done it on a dog or something, but this was actually on one of the pregnant women in McLeod's because it was all run by ladies, that farm. Very briefly, I wanted to ask you about Cut because oh, yeah, yeah. I, I did see that in the cinema. I can't remember. Did you get killed horrifically on screen? Yeah, I did. I burnt to death. Oh, but it wasn't horrific. actually me. It was my stunt double. <laughs> And, Your stunt you know, double burnt to death. My, stu- my stunt double burnt to death. Yeah, I hated her. Did you get to hang out with Mary Wingwald? Yeah, I did actually. And? She was lovely. A bit like a sort of polite princess. Yeah, she was lovely. We had like a barbecue thing around at someone's house and mm, no bad stories. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted something really salacious, didn't you, John? You never know. So tell us about Doctor Who. When, when, when did you first... Realise? Well, the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was that kind of... Because also my parents were kind of like a bit anti-commercial television, so it was always ABC. So there's no doubt that Doctor Who kind of created this, you know, early childhood landscape. Um, and some of those images are completely imprinted. We had uh, this thing called Slime in the 70s, um, you know, that came in a tub. And I remember I put it... It said, don't put this in your hair. And I put it in my hair and my mother had to kind of cut it out. And it was this big, green, oozy stuff. And, of course, I remember that that episode where the big green oozy Doctor Who slime kind of takes over people. Yeah. You know, you know the one? I'm actually trying to have a, uh, narrow it down. It's, um, <laughs> no, it's, no, it's, they it's they probably the, the green death. Because that's green oozy slime. Okay. Yeah, it, it makes starts, giant it maggots gets on your hand. It's space? in the ship. It's in the ship. Oh, no, Archon's space. And it gets on your hand and then it grows and then you get covered and you turn into a big slime monster. Yeah, that was Ark in Space, I think. This is a recurring theme. I think we're going to end up with an Ark in Space reference every episode. Yeah. I do. No, it's just because it's really memorable because it's this... No, it is. People turn into these giant green bubble wrap and slime yeah. kind of monster thing, yeah. And it did seem to time itself with the marketing of this kid's toy, the slime they got in a, in a <laughs> thing as well. So the two things are connected. And the cryogenically frozen bodies too. That's the yes. other thing that freaked me out. Is that a common one too that, that you find? Was same episode. Same story. Just that okay. story uh, has forced people to become fans of Doctor Who. Well, Tom Baker was sort of my favourite, I would have thought, mm-hmm. too. Because it's funny, even though he wasn't kind of the most physically attractive, he just had that kind of charisma. He was sort of, to me, the sexiest Doctor I can't, you can't comment on that. What do you think? Oh, I'm nodding furiously over here. Oh, you think? Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it was something yeah. to do with that kind of the resonant voice and, and the scarf. And there was just something that, you know, a bit kind of academic about him as well and just yeah, hot. I, I just find the notion of sexy doctors terrifying. Like, to me, they're, they're meant to be father figures and it's like going, you know what, fancy my dad a bit. You know, it's just kind of, <laughs> kind of creepy. No, you can't comment. But we'll get to that to the, um, uh, later on in the year where we'll actually be having uh, one of the episodes we will be talking about sex in Doctor Who. So that'll be interesting. Mm. But the recent episodes... Because my, my husband's a big fan, so I've been watching a lot with him over the years since they started again. And you know, they, I mean, they, I think they're so they're fantastic. They satisfy on all levels, as we'll mm-hmm. sort of discuss. Well, we should probably also bring on the other guests because otherwise there's an empty seat on stage and it looks embarrassing. 
Petra. Our next splendid chap is the author of almost 70 published short stories and 27 novels, including The Books of the Cataclysm, and with Shane Dix, Evergence, Orphans, and the Geodesica series. He has co-written three books in the Star Wars New Jedi Order series and is a multiple recipient of both the Ditmar and Orialis Awards. His latest series are Trouble Twisters, a fantasy for middle-grade readers co-written with Garth Nix, and Twin Maker, a new future thriller for young adults and old adults too. He's an annoying overachiever. He's Sean Williams. Now, we've been using the phrase New York Times bestseller a lot when we've been publicising the show because that's what you're good for. It's actually number one New York Times bestseller. That's <laughs> just, just to be picky. And it's 38 books and 85 short stories. See, I'm, I'm coming off swinging on the annoying card. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah, you not only do you, are you an overachiever, but you're exactly aware of how much of an overachiever you are. <laughs> that's right. That's Brilliant. annoying. I, I discovered the joy of reading through two particular franchises. One was uh, Agatha Christie, which my mother had a vast collection of, so I read all of them when I was about seven or eight. But I was also given Doctor Who and the Zabi and Doctor Who and the Crusaders, the two, I think the two first, or among the first ever novelizations ever written. And I just devoured them and, uh, and became a very, very annoying child that would want to go into every bookstore to see if there were any of the target novelizations that I didn't already have. And I ended up with about 120 of them or 119 or something like that. And I still have them. And I still drag them out and read them every now and again. And I always wanted to do a novelisation because of my experience reading Terence Dix and That's Malcolm Hawke. That's You've also written a Doctor Who piece. You've written a piece for Big Finish. I have, and... Uh uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a John Pertwee story. Um, I was actually invited to contribute to this an- anthology. It's called Destination Prague, edited by a friend of mine called Stephen Saville. And his, his idea for an anthology was, surely the Doctor went to other cities a lot, apart from London. And he said, well, why not Prague? Because Prague's kind of the dead centre of Europe. It has this incredible rich history of astronomers and golems and all this kind of stuff. And he emailed me and said, well, I'd like you to write a story. And I said, um, no, I'm too scared. And he said, you should always do the things you're frightened of. Uh, and I really want you in the book. And I went, all right, only, I'll do it, but only if I can do a John Pertwee story, a third Doctor story set between Joe Grant and Sarah Jane Smith. So he said, well, you you have to submit to the BBC. You you submit a proposal and then they say yes or no. Uh, It's nothing to do with me. So I I submitted the proposal, they said yes. And, And then I thought, well, hell, now I've got to write it, you know. This, this was only a few years back, and, um, uh, and I had this terrifying fear that if I couldn't write John Pertwee, if I couldn't write Doctor Who, then it would kind of pop the bubble. The, the, I want to say the ghost of Terence Dix, but he's not actually dead yet. The, the Terence Dix would kind of swoop out of the sky in a superhero outfit, take away my writing mojo and say, you can't do this anymore. So it was actually the most scarifying, that's scar- scarifying, that'll do, yeah, no, scarifying. thing that I've ever yeah. done. And, and that year I had four novels come out and one retrospective collection of short stories come out in the same year and this one short story. And I was more excited by this short story than I was by anything else that came out that year. So he's clearly your favourite? Yes. 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 Matt Smith, is, <laughs> Matt Smith is so fantastic, you know. He's so wonderful that I think... But I won't know until Matt's reign has kind of finished. Uh, and I, and I, but I think I really like Matt Smith. I think um, the ghost of John Pertwee is now about to appear and stab me in the back. But, I, but until Matt Smith came along, uh, John Pertwee was my favourite, hands-down favourite. I, I don't think he was the best Doctor, but he was my absolute favourite. Well, I mean, the Pertwee era is what we're here to talk about, so why don't we just get a little bit of background info from Petra and then we'll get right into it. John Devon Roland Pertwee was born on the 7th of July, 1919, exactly 38 years before David Hodo, the construction worker in the village 
people. He grew up in a showbiz family in Chelsea, London. Descended from the Huguenots, their surname was an anglicization of De Pertuis de Lallieveau. As a youth, he specialized in being expelled from schools, culminating in him being asked to leave RADA for refusing to play a Greek wind. Like Patrick Troughton, Pertwee was an officer in the Royal Navy, spending some time attached to the highly secretive Naval Intelligence Branch during the Second World War, working alongside James Bond author Ian Fleming and future Prime Minister Jim Callaghan. His naval adventures included being transferred away from a posting on the HMS Hood shortly before she was sunk by the German battleship the Bismarck, and and waking up after a drunken night out to find a tattoo of a cobra on his right arm. After the war, he made a name for himself as a comedy actor on radio in the Waterlogged Spa and famously from 1959 to 1977 played the conniving Chief Petty Officer Pertwee in BBC Radio's The Navy Lark. He appeared in the mid-60s carry-on films Carry On Cleo, Carry On Cowboy and Carry On Screaming and was one of many carry-on veterans to return for the 31st and final carry-on film 1992's Carry On Columbus. Time Out magazine said at the time... Whatever affection one had for the carry-on films died with Sid James. In 1969, Pertwee heard that Patrick Troughton was leaving Doctor Who and asked his agent to inquire about the part. His agent discovered his was the second name on the shortlist. Ron Moody, a huge hit as Fagan in Oliver, was initially offered the part but turned it down. Outside of Doctor Who, Pertwee also appeared in The Avengers, The Goodies, Super Ted, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles and was greatly loved as a living scarecrow, Wurzel Gummidge. He also hosted the murder mystery quiz program, Who Done It, and appeared in the films Wombling Free and One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. He was very much a showman and enjoyed the limelight. Famously a great fan of action movies and vehicles, he was also very interested in animation. He argued with comedian Spike Milligan over which of them was the biggest fan of Disney's Aladdin. He would have liked to have had more dramatic roles. In his own words, Somehow I seem to have been gently bypassed as a serious actor, too long enjoying life and working in night entertainment perhaps. Pertwee returned to the role of the Doctor for the 1983 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors. The stage play Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure in 1989. The 1993 charity special, Dimensions in Time. And two audio productions for BBC Radio, The Paradise of Death and The Ghosts of Space in 93 and 96. Pertwee continued working at conventions and as both a voice and television actor until his death from a heart attack in Connecticut on May 20, 1996. It was two months before his 77th birthday and just days after the original American broadcast of the Doctor Who telemovie. The BBC broadcast added a dedication to him following the credits. He was cremated at Putney Vale Crematorium with a toy Wurzel Gummidge affixed to the coffin, according to the instructions in his will. One of the many things about John Pertwee that I love is that he always reminded me of my grandfather a lot. And he was also the first doctor to die after I had become a really big fan. Like, I'd been watching the show for years, but, but um, by the time I found out about the, the earlier doctors, they'd already died. And then when the news came that John Pertwee had died, I was really sad because it was also it was a couple of years after my grandfather had died and I was like oh I never got to tell him that he reminded me of my grandfather I thought that's the stupidest thing to think of, <laughs> of all time like why does John Pertwee care that he reminds some guy in Australia of his own grandfather but even down to the tattoo because my grandfather also had a, a sort of a, a tattoo that he regretted from his youth what I I really like about Pertwee I love him he's actually one of my absolute favorite doctors and going back and watching these stories being reminded of that weird show busy 
kind of personality, that very 70s, like how on those sort of Tonight shows, like the Don Lane show, you'd always imagine these people were just, like we were tuning in to get an hour of a party they were at, and afterwards they would all just keep going somewhere, like we got to look in. And Pertwee very much gives me that suspicion that that's actually just him on screen doing his thing. If you've ever seen Who Done It, which is the really weird variety, uh, it's like a celebrity game show, murder kind of, mystery. Kind of like the Clue show we had here, wasn't it? Kind of like Clue, yeah. And, and I watched one of those, and he's just making these bizarre in-jokes that only the people on the panel can get. I kind of love that about him. Kathy, what, what, what's your thoughts on... on well, I think the, the thing about is the, the well-dressed doctor. You know, mm. he was the first one to sort of stand out in terms of the, the dapper uniform. But also, um, as I discovered, the relationship between him and his kind of MI5 past. So he's the first kind of doctor who's a bit like Bond, in a mm. way. He's a bit like the Bond doctor. Um, and you can see that sort of the, the debonair, um, you know, quality that he's got. Um, but, yeah, that whole relationship with him being a spy, too. Which, and apparently the spy stuff only came out you know, he didn't. He kept mum about that for a long time. Yeah, Pertwee was revealed to have been working as a spy. Uh, he did all kinds of stuff with the because he was in the yeah secret intelligence with the British Navy, and he did things like teach other agents how to use their gadgets, like like hidden bits of wire in wristwatches so that they could saw through things, and weird maps that folded up really small and to a go pipe in your pocket. and a pipe that you know like a smoking gentleman's pipe that could fire bullets too. And I mean, I don't know this is me. I actually found myself slightly doubting whether these stories were <laughs> just just because like, I went and watched huh? a whole bunch of interviews. But look, I love him. I genuinely love him. And it was it's funny seeing these interviews across a, like 20 years and word for word the same stories in every single interview and kind of that showmanshipy thing and thinking, well, I don't know, like, is anyone else actually confirming you did these things, John? Or have you just come up with some really cool stories that are, I, I don't know, I'm just putting it out there. But just the funny thing is he there. sort of, you know, he left because he didn't want to get typecast and then, you know, you know, it's quite ironic he becomes a scarecrow in his next kind of incarnation. It's kind of like the furthest yeah. away from... <laughs> A well-dressed debonair, sort of debonair yeah. fellow, really. He seemed to love Wurzel Gummidge, too. I should just point out that... The, the, yeah, I think he loved being loved by children. I think, I think he liked that about both roles. And he loved to make public appearances and, you know, either dressed as a doctor driving around Bessie or in the Hoomobile. Like, he owned, he owned that car. Like, <laughs> but this is something that got put out before about that 70s show business. It was actually David was pointing us out that it shows us this... this window into that time period that if Matt Smith decided to build himself a space age car and ask the producer if he could put it in the show so that he could do it for appearances in public, we'd think that was bonkers. Like that <laughs> would just, you know, no one would do that now. They would never let you put your special space age car you've had privately built. But back then it was like, of course, why not? We'll it depend it on, it'd depend on the car, surely, if Matt Smith <laughs> turned up with a super duper car. So that's the challenge to Matt Smith now. That's we right. want to see you build a space car and get that put into the what? next series. Are you listening, Matt? This is your chance. Yeah. To be immortalised. It's interesting too that like the the doctors now they never appear in costume. Like whenever you see them interviewed on chat shows or doing public appearances at cons, they don't they don't dress in costume. You see Matt Smith on a Tonight Show, he's wearing like a cool T-shirt and some jeans. No, they don't function like characters in the way that the earlier doctors did in that sense. Well, we in particular. Although it was weird, we were saying one of the within the interviews you can find online. It's a Parkinson one from I think 1978. Doesn't mention Doctor Who at all. Like, the entire interview, it's not even touched on. The very introduction's missing, so it could be that Parkey mentions it in the intro, but never again after that. And it mentions Waterlog Spa, mentions Wurzel Gummidge. And then five years later, I think there's a one from an American PBS station in which he's in full costume. Like, he's in the, the frills and the cape. And then and there's one from Wogan where he comes out of a TARDIS. And you're going, yeah, I'm not sure what that was about. Obviously, there was a brief period where he went, maybe I should try and... 
broaden this. I want to do something else, he thought. Yeah. Yeah. Fraser Hines was here uh, at the end of last year and he still wears the kilt out at every opportunity. <laughs> uh, well, he, he wants to show off his legs. Clearly. That's right. He's got great legs, actually. Yeah. Pertwee wasn't sexy, I don't think. Not, you know, from my point of view anyway. That's sort of, I don't know what everyone else would... Well, any See, I would, have thought, I would have thought Pertwee possibly was sexy, though. No, He's got that no, whole grandfatherly, bond. grandfatherly. But, I mean, you know, I should have asked my mother, but I don't think so. And even when you, you watch it back, the way he plays it, it's still, it's not as, he's kind of, he's a debonair, smooth, he's got that Bond thing about him, but it's not, there's not, and it's also because it, it's not set up with the ladies in the, the thing either, whereas, you know, the ladies later, there's that, that, that tension starts to creep in. But I don't, do you, I don't do get much tension. Do you think that tension. tension creeps in, Cathy? Because I think that's a very modern thing, but do you think it's there, say, in, in Tom Baker and Peter Davis? Well, I'm not sure because it's coloured by how I thought about Tom oh, Baker. Okay. So. <laughs> See, I think I'd go more the way that I think. Uh, Pertwee was the father I wanted to have. Like, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so there's a, there, which we talked about Richard Pryor, oddly enough, as well. I think of, there are certain 70s character actors who I think became these kind of weird default parents for a lot of people. There was a sense of wanting them to be your family. The thing I liked about Pertwee in that regard was that uh, he, he had a constant sense of play about him until things got real, and then you'd see the underlying moral certainty underneath. So he was playful, he was charming, he could be flirtatious, he could, he could play games, but when it came to the crunch, he was absolutely real. And, you, and I, I suspect it was the real Pertwee too, that, uh, that there would be a real Pertwee behind this role as well. But uh, you got the sense that the Doctor was 100% embedded in something very serious and very actual. But, but it wasn't out there all the time. He would have been, if he'd been that earnest all the time, it would be very tedious and very boring. So the, all the other stuff gave him a real rounded kind of colour palette that made him very enjoyable company but also somebody you could rely on absolutely completely, just like a fun grandfather or a father or an uncle or a strange old fellow that hang around a lot. And it's very entertaining, <laughs> but not in a creepy way. <laughs> One thing I did actually notice going back and watching this, a couple of things I noticed. One was, uh, and this is, I think, partly from having seven-episode stories, that I was surprised how often Pertwee is not present in these stories, how often they can kind of delay his entry into the story, like in The Demons, or how often they will knock him unconscious, like in The Demons, and uh, how uh, there's just this... It is, it's fascinating how often uh, he can kind of be on the sidelines in a, in a show that is, you know, nominally about him, which I actually think showed both a confidence in, in the storytelling and also the fact that they had broadened the, the show at that point to be about unit and about you know like like that they they felt comfortable enough to spread that story out and that him. happened very prominently in the in the three doctors where it was the first time they ever brought previous doctors back so for, for him as an actor it must have been very challenging to realize that you weren't just sharing the stage with other cast members like the brigadier or joe grant or liz shaw or etc or the master but you were actually sharing the screen with your own character but i was thinking that how much that shows how much he could hold that's right yeah that that tension. Right. Um, like the first episode of uh, ambassadors of death i think he basically just spends the whole thing grumbling and can't get computer time and yet He's still great, you know. He's still he's still clearly the lead. He yeah. just doesn't do anything. And it's weird. I I really love his first season, which is you know it's very different from what comes afterwards because it's very uh, you know to a certain extent it's fairly slow paced, um, or at least it, the pace comes in little pockets. Like the Ambassador of Death is really interesting because there's bits where people just talk for ages, and then there's these great action bits where it's like hey, running around, and, and then people get electrocuted by radiation that conducts through wood. Um, why not? <laughs> it's sci-fi. It doesn't have to make scientific sense. Um, but I, I really liked... I, I was always quite cranky about 
David Tennant's first episode that he spends half of it asleep. I thought that was a really stupid way to start. And then I, and I'd completely forgotten until I went back and watched Spearhead from Space again. John Pertwee spends the first two out of four episodes of Spearhead from Space basically yeah. in a hospital bed. He also nicks his costume from a hospital. Uh, which the Doctor's now done th- three times. Yes, yeah, three be- times. Becoming a theme. It's a theme. I think it's yeah. I think it's actually a serious kleptomania thing now. I, there'll be a spin-off series about a detective who's just trying to track down a thief. <laughs> who Hospital operates, clothes thief. Yeah, hospitals. <laughs> and he just yeah, he can't find him because he's, no two descriptions match. <laughs> the other thing I really liked about Pertwee is that there's this pomposity to him. Which I suspect comes from the real actor. Like, everyone sort of says that Pertwee is playing himself, and there is this slight grumpiness and this slight wanting to be in control, which I think is partly him. And I really like the way that the fact the show both works with it and against it. So, and in this way, it reminds me of Frasier. Yes, I'm going to make the first ever Doctor Who Frasier comparison. Um, the sitcom Frasier has that thing with the lead character where sometimes you're meant to go, yes, you are a, a cultured man in this uncivilized society. And sometimes you're meant to think, what a tosser. And I think it's interesting how they do it that with Pertwee. Sometimes it is meant to be that we're meant to be admiring his vaguely Playboy magazine-esque knowledge of wines and, and, you know, the good things in life. And sometimes they can use characters like the Brigadier to kind of just pull that out from underneath him and go, oh, what, is, what are you on? Get your hand off it, Pertwee. <laughs> it's a very post-colonial kind of statement, isn't it? He sort of represents the fading days of empire in lots of ways. You kind of want to like him, just like you kind of want to admire the British Empire sometimes, but you know that it did terrible things and represented terrible things and, and we should all be slightly embarrassed by it in, in a modern age. And even in the 70s, I think people felt that way. So I think uh, the way his character was written uh, very much encapsulates that time and space in British history. So it's quite a lot to put on one actor's shoulders, but I think... <laughs> there is a sort of dying of empire theme that yeah. maybe is in there, but the UK is kind of now where they're probably not on the top of the league table of yeah, world conquest. And yet this is almost putting them back there. It's like we're so important we get invaded every week and <laughs> the brigadier right. can single-handedly save the world. But that's a theme throughout the whole thing, isn't it? The idea of the, you know, the crumbling world, which is so, you know, um, so much the case of Europe post-Second World War. It really speaks to the ambivalence of, of, of England at that time. You get stories like The Mutants, which are... Uh, uh, really critical of colonial empires uh, and there are many stories like that in this period of Doctor Who and yet Doctor Who treats, I mean there's an effort to treat sort of various ethnicities for the first time on Doctor Who but still doesn't do it very well and uh, has an underlying sort of um, presumption of empire that bleeds into everything that kind of undercuts all the good efforts of, of the various writers and uh, and Terence Dix is much as I love Terence Dix is one of those writers that still fails at that particular hurdle you know he wants to come out sort of championing the little people and championing the the you know the the poor folks that haven't been indoctrinated into empire yet um, but assumes that empire will be good for them at the same time so it's it's an interesting time for Doctor Who. And actually when, as we're on the, the, the PC note too what's the in terms of integration of caste and ethnic and use of you know ethnic actors too around this time as well oh, is that is it's horrendous at that, that time well, I mean although it's weird because you start getting you get non-white actors in there mm. but often the roles are odd 
or and, and, the usage is strange. And even into the the late seventies, on Doctor Who and uh, other you know television of the time, you see white actors playing non-white roles quite a lot. Like you know, in, famously in Talons of Wang Chiang, and, and there's all, there's not and there's not that many because in Mind of Evil, they Mind of Evil going to because it's that very strange yeah. bit in Mind of Evil where the Doctor puts together the Master's plan because a Chinese girl has been involved in both of them. And the idea that there is apparently only one Chinese girl in England, or indeed the world. Particularly when there's like, you know, a, a big peace conference going on with a Chinese delegation there. So there's at least those people. Yes, and the actually a Chinese girl. No, that is the clue. But even the Brigadier says, it could be a coincidence. Because no, it couldn't be. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a better racist than you, I say. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's although, strange for the doctor to say, really. Although that is actually something I want to mention. He gets to be wrong a lot, which I... I know all the Doctors do, but I think with Pertwee, because they set him up to be this figure of authority, maybe more than some of the others, it's more fun when he's wrong. He, he takes it be. really personally. He really doesn't like it. Like, there's that bit at the start of Carnival of Monsters where they land on the ship and he's insisting, like, no, this can't be Earth. Like, we can't be on Earth. We may, we've clearly gone a bit off course, but we can't be on Earth. It doesn't make any sense. And Joe's like, look, look there's chickens. It says Singapore on the box. It's clearly... <laughs> there's human beings here. They're speaking English. It's clearly Earth, Doctor. And Although, like, to be fair, no. it is isn't Earth. He is actually quite I know. Right. Yeah. I know, but he ref- even when all the evidence is in his face, he won't for a second sort of admit that maybe he's wrong. He's sort of like, no. But it's almost like he's an extreme scientist. He's going, this is my theory. It's true. Until it's kind of revealed not to be true. So what we're saying is he's a very bad scientist. He's kind of a bad scientist. I think, I think Doctor Who is a celebration of bad science in many ways. Yeah. But the fact that it's a celebration of any kind of science is really important to me, and that's one of the reasons why I love... Pertwee's era was that he really strongly championed that line that no matter how strange things are, no matter how many times somebody says it's the devil and the demons, it's always science. Science, it's science, it's science. Even though it's bad science in the real world, the, the underlying assumption that there's always a scientific explanation is a very powerful one. Which is a bit like, it's always a bit disappointing, isn't it? It's, it's a bit like the Scooby-Doo episodes where, you know, no matter how spooky it is, it's always going to be, you know, some villain <laughs> yeah, in a mask. It's a guy in a mask. Yeah, and, and so I do find that a little bit disappointing sometimes. You want it to be a demon, not just, you know, science. Well, see, I'm the exact opposite. Uh, I actually wrote an essay for a, a, a collection, essays by thinkers about why they are atheists and why they became atheists. And I, I wrote a story, uh, wrote, didn't write a story, I wrote an essay about how it was all because of Doctor Who and it was all because of John Pertwee's endless insistence that it was science, 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 science. And, uh, and I totally embraced that worldview, even though, you know, the science was absurd. I, I found it absolutely wonderful that, that all the mumbo-jumbo we're taught, uh, as I was uh, when I was younger, could be explicated and uh, be made... Comprehensible. How odd that we responded differently to that. Oh, that's right. well, I was just going to say that I, I was going to say that Kathy and I would disagree about this completely. Maybe we've had many arguments. Yes, I was hoping you'd fight. Go on, please. <laughs> well, actually, this, this leads segues into another thing I liked about Pertwee, and what is really distinctive about his doctor in some ways is that in the Carnival of Monsters, he gets his fists out and he has a bit of a biff and he shoots people and he does all... I mean, he, he also does Venusian lullabies with monsters and hypnotises and all that sort of stuff, but he's not afraid to go the biff. And that and that's... that was for, Particularly for in the period of history we're talking about in Doctor Who, that was kind of the first time we saw anything like that since Hartnell went to squash somebody's head with a rock in, like, the very third episode ever or fourth episode. He's a bit sort of like uh, Professor Challenger or something, isn't he, from, from the Arthur he's, Conan Doyle? He's in the modern parlance he is uh, what is called in the i think this term was coined by the comic book um uh, atomic robo which is brilliant um, they refer to them as action scientists and they practice action science and if there's any character that has ever embodied that on television it's clearly john pertwee's doctor he's like an indiana jones who uses science instead of archaeology
mythology. He's running around. He's, he's a two-fisted adventurer. And it's interesting. Yeah, in Carnival of Monsters, normally he's doing Venusian Aikido. So he's just throwing people around. And it seems like it's clearly self-defense. He's not really going to hurt anyone too badly. And he's only going to attack them if they attack him. And it's quite disconcerting in Carnival of Monsters. He's just punching the guy who will later be Harry Sullivan in the face. <laughs> uh, and getting punched in the face by him. Like it's, That's a really weird sort of sequence. That's a very meta story because it's all about watching people captured um, to entertain you. And it it was an interesting time in Doctor Who where they were starting to think about, well, what is it that we're doing and and what are we presenting and how do we talk about it? I really like the way he reacts or or the way he, the relationship he has with his companions. And uh, it's different with Liz and with Joe, but um, Liz, who's one of my all-time favourite companions, she and the Doctor almost immediately form this very easy, very you know, equal friendship. And it's clearly like a sort of a professional friendship that then becomes a personal friendship. And you're like, yeah, these guys just really like each other. They get along. And she's learning a lot from him because, you know, he's an alien and knows all this weird science that she will never learn in a university. And she's eager to learn. And she starts out just sort of helping him. But, you know, even by the time of Inferno, um, she's working on the TARDIS console and seems to understand everything that's going on. So she's clearly, you know, his equal mentally, even if she doesn't have his experience and knowledge. Uh, and it's just a beautiful friendship. And then you see it again in Joe, but it's a different dynamic because Joe knows nothing about science and she's always very clueless when it comes to that kind of stuff. But then she's really useful in other ways. Like he'll go, oh, if only we had some skeleton keys. And she's like, jingle, jingle, jingle. I'm a trained spy. I know I don't look like it because um, I'm dressed like a go-go dancer. But it's... Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's lovely their friendship as well, and then the friendship he develops with Sarah Jane again. It starts in a different place, but it becomes a very easy. We're we're great friends, and we're going to have a good time and hang out um, and go on these adventures. And and yet he's also he's still very, like you were saying earlier, he's very avuncular and protective. He's always looking out for them and making sure that they're okay in these dangerous situations that they find themselves in. I think with the three assistants, they're, they're perhaps not deliberately, but they're very well chosen that uh, you do see Liz as an intellectual equal and perhaps a rival of him um, sometimes. Uh, and then Joe, you see his warm side. You see that he can be very protective and very paternal. Uh, he's extraordinarily protective of her and close to her. But then with Sarah Jane Smith, you can see that he can be ribbed as well. I mean, she, she doesn't take his kind of avuncular patronising stuff very often. She'll, she'll give him a hard time because they haven't landed on... Not Metabilis 3. What's the place they're going to? Floriana. Floriana, that's right. Yeah, they try that uh, a few times. That's right. And she's giving him a terrible time over and over again, and, and, and in a good-natured kind of way. And I think that shows a really rounded, developing character for the Doctor. That, um, and that's kind of what the assistants do, in a way. They're, they're there to bring out different aspects. Well, they do, but certainly earlier on, they just do seem to act as types to a certain extent. Yes, so, true, true. But there does seem to be like an evolution, I suppose, obviously, there is with the whole series um, over its many decades um, but in terms of the, the depth of character with the female roles too and I mean I don't know again whether it's one of those moments but the, you know Sarah Jane is one of those females that I will always remember I don't know if there's been a lot written about that at all that I haven't managed to. I think Sarah Jane uh, to her work at least in the first series was quite heavily sort of signposted so it's basically you know this is a woman with a job that she does very well as far as we can tell she's a journalist she's really good at investigating so I think that gives her another level that we perhaps didn't see with the other character she exists independently and outside of the doctor Mm, yeah so there's a dimension there as well and and as you said maybe other ways of interacting with a doctor that sort of hadn't happened before but it just gets more interesting somehow that relationship the other thing that I wanted to say is, is contrast with the previous two doctors is that Pertwee is very He's charming, he makes jokes, like he's a funny person, uh, but he's very serious. Like he's never 
you don't you often rarely see him as a buffoon or acting as a clown until something horrible has to happen to him and then he has to pull a face um at which point all bets are off and it's just gurning central um, right from the beginning of in Spearhead from Space at the end when the tentacles come out of the box and start strangling him. He pulls the most extraordinary faces and he does it again and again. They, they had to refilm that apparently. The first time was worse. Yeah. They had to remount it. I read that and I was like, how can it be worse? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's really interesting that even though he was very well known as a comic actor, even though, and even though the character was charming and warm and sometimes funny, he never played the character as a comic character. The doctor was his doctor was always serious, and if if his doctor did something funny, it was the character doing something funny, not us laughing at you know Trout and tripping over something or being you know buffoonery, not being able to plug wires incorrectly or you know holding Jamie's hand by accident or anything like that. It was it was on purpose. It was a character moment. I think this was like Pertwee's big opportunity. I think he saw this as a big chance to to do serious acting for the first time ever, and I actually think there's a little bit that maybe comes to the surface there that. If characters do mock him, he seems to be taking it quite personally. And I suspect maybe as an actor, there was that nervousness. He'd always been a comedy actor. Was he going to be able to do this, that But that happens so much too. Looking back at the old episodes, it's like everyone has their kind of RSC moment, don't they? I mean, you know, there are whole moments which are just like you knew that next door in the BBC studios, they were filming, you know, Much Ado About Nothing or whatever. And it's like these were the guys who got to do the, the, well, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what the perception of Doctor Who was at the time. But I'm sure all those actors, and I don't want to sound rude, probably wanted to have their moment, James Duty Dench or whoever sort of next door. And, you know, that this is kind of their moment to do something similar. And, of course, the aesthetic's really the same, too, with a lot of the things you can see with the BBC doing with their Shakespearean television drama and how much the sort of the, the almost studio style inflects some of those, um, you know, uh, places from, uh, you know, people from other planets. It, it comes from a very theatrical background. Very theatrical. Yeah. And they do. You just have to laugh at some of those moments. And, oh, and there are RSC voices suddenly come on and this is their big moment to declaim. <laughs> yeah, like whenever they go back in time, it's just, it's all RSC all the way. It's yeah, yeah. Speaks yeah. RP. That's how people talk to back then, Ben. That's yeah. just a fact. Or oh, in ancient Atlantis. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to go to a break, but first... We are very honoured and lucky to have with us uh, a guest performer today. He's come all the way from the UK just to do the podcast. No, Just to do true. this! That's not at all true. Um, his name is Tim Fitzhire, and he's doing two shows in the Adelaide Fringe Festival. We've asked him to come along and do something very special. Now, you may or may not know this, but in 1972 there was a single released. See, again, something Matt Smith doesn't do these days. Um, (laughs) John Pertwee put out a single in 1972 while playing The Doctor uh, in which he basically did a Shatner-esque spoken word performance over the top of a kind of funked-up Doctor Who theme. We thought it would be great if we could recreate that. So we can please welcome up to the stage Tim Fitzheim. circles time. I see where others stumble blind to seek a truth they never find. Eternal wisdom is my guide. I am the Doctor. Through cosmic waste the TARDIS flies to taste the secret source of life. A presence science can't deny exists within, outside, behind. The latitude of human minds. I am the Doctor. My voyage dissects the course of time. Who knows, you say, but are you right? Who searches deep to find the light that glows so darkly in the night? Towards that point I guide my flight. A 
as fingers move to end mankind, metallic teeth begin their grind. With sword of truth I turn to fight the satanic powers of the night. Is your faith before your mind? Know me. Am I the Doctor? Thank you so much, Tim, for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. During the break, you've all written out some fabulous questions for us to ask. We're about to go through those, but first we will also draw out the listener at home who has won the DVD from last month, because as well as the door prize, we operate here for the real people. For the fake people listening at home, we have a virtual door prize. Anyone who left a comment on the blog post about last month's episode, which was two slash evil, has gone into the draw. We have all their names here. The winner of the, the Unreal Listener uh, Prize is Mr. Richard Ingram. Richard, Richard Ingram. Ingram! We've no idea who he is or where he's from, but he listens to our podcast! Hey! Hey! And we also have a copy this month of Ambassadors of Death to give away to one of the people who've left a comment or question for us here in the audience. There's also one for you at home, unreal person. Again, just go to our website and leave a comment on the blog post about this episode, 3 Slash Family. And you'll need to do that uh, before we record the second part of our fourth Doctor and Comedy episode on the 13th of April. So, so leave April a comment 12th. by April 12th. Yes. yes. And that's thanks to the good people at BBC on DVD. So the first question I have from our audience today is, do you really believe that archaeology is not a science. Ah, that's yes. for you, Ben. I, uh, I, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. Um, I'm very sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, what I meant was that Pertwee is sort of your more uh, classic physics slash chemistry kind of those sort of sciences um, rather than a science that directly interacts with the humanities in the way that archaeology does. So archaeology, of course, is a science mixed yeah, in with are you, are a you bunch helping? of other stuff. I think I am. I, I consider it a science. <laughs> I, just, I just meant that he doesn't, use, he doesn't really seem to know much about archaeology. Although having said that, in Death to Daleks, he does almost immediately recognise that uh, this, the, uh, the, the things on, um, on the planet look like Peruvian... And then there's the uh, demons where he's arguing with... Yeah, and he goes through the whole... Basically, he is an archaeologist. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. my, okay. so my comment was rubbish. He rubbish. uses archaeology <laughs> and other forms of science, is what I should if have said. If you had to have Don't. a Pertwee story lost or wiped, <laughs> which one would you choose? Cruel. That is such a superb question. That's so good, though. The first two shows go, which would you rescue? And the third show, which one would you destroy? I like <laughs> most of them. I haven't seen... I've seen... I think I've seen just about all of them. Um... I'm actually finding this quite hard. Cause, uh, you know, I, I actually would lose some episodes. I think that would be better. Like, yeah. I would lose, like, two or three episodes out of The Ambassadors of Death and maybe one episode out of The Silurians because they, they are they do feel a bit too long, and that would be okay. And then they, maybe they'd have to reconstruct them with animation. <laughs> but there's genuinely not... Yeah, I can't think of... Uh, Tom Baker, I can name off the top of my head, like, a three stories I'd easily lose forever yeah. and not care about. But um, Three seasons, almost. But Pertwee yeah. Is, is... Yeah, I mean, they've all got something going on yeah, in them. Yeah, they do. They've not got Pertwee in them. Why would you erase a Pertwee I, no, look, story? I've got to say, I don't know. I did find the demons a bit... Oh, God, part five. Oh, here we go. Okay, yep. Oh. Really go, and I would definitely like to lose the parts with the Morris dancers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
what did you they say? They are evil. What did you say evil. on Twitter? <laughs> well, I was watching that episode and, and the Morris dancers came out and I'm like, oh, they're evil. And then they actually were evil. So I think I pinned it. You have a fear of Morris dancers. I really, I've worked at the National Folk Festival for too many years. <laughs> Sean said, though, before that you should do the things that you're frightened of. So apparently you should do a Morris dancer. <laughs> well, I think, so I think, I think our answer to that question is we can't really think of one that we no. hate that much. No. Oh, well, maybe one of the Peladon stories. We didn't really need two no. of them, did we? No. the fancy hairdos, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But we've got two lots of them. We don't need both of them. But you could th- with three wouldn't be too many. We'll, just, we'll just choose some episodes at random, that's fine. Moving on. Okay, alright. <laughs> Can we talk about the weird music in Doctor Who? Weird music in Who? I love the weird music. You see, I went back, so I said before, I watched Death of the Daleks loads, and the thing that I most remembered about it was the music because it's this weird kind of it's like not a kazoo but this is a strange weird uh, well, melody. There's a bit of theremin in, in there too. I would have it thought, sounds isn't like it, but in actual fact, so this John, was Death of the Daleks. Oh, you know, you're about to tell Death us. of the Daleks. Yeah, uh, well, it was um, Carrie Blyton composed the music. It was by the London Saxophone Quartet. Yeah, and, and the thing is, though, the two Carrie Blyton. Um, scores in this period, they're both brilliant because his thing there was that all electronics had been switched off, there was no power so therefore he wrote a score that doesn't involve any electronic instrumentation, so there's a lot of synthesizers in that period, but not in his, his it's, it's a saxophone quartet because that's what always happens when a power strike happens, that a saxophone quartet will run sax. out to the street Yeah, it's, it's the sound of it <laughs> um, and his other one he wrote was the Silurian score which again he used um, I'm going to mispronounce this, I do apologise classical musicians um, Ophicleides Crumb horns and serpents, which is the thing is that sounds like an electric kazoo, and they're all yeah, they're all ancient instruments that, that, that aren't used because he wanted this idea of history and going back, and therefore made a score that sounds terrible. But it's a really interesting idea. I, you know, I like. Uh, look, I know I'm alone in this, but every time the Silurians come out and you get that, I love those guys. That's a great cue for them. It's also Dudley Simpson starts working full on in this period, who goes on to do virtually yeah all of the first half. Don Baker sound, I think, in Doctor Who, especially in this period, is amazing. And things like even in like the demons, they remember to make the crypt sound like a crypt. They actually put on like the right reverbs. They put on treatments, stuff that a lot of other I think more ITV shows weren't bothering with. But the um, cliffhanger noise actually is used for the first time in Ambassadors of Death. So the little. Which, as a kid, terrified me. And I used to get like 20 minutes into the, to the episode and I knew the cliffhanger would be coming and I was more frightened of the noise of the cliffhanger <laughs> than the cliffhanger itself. And, you know, that little video recorder would be there on the top but I knew that 6.55 would be when Doctor Who finished and it was like 6.54 and the noise was going to happen. And, yeah, and I think that, that sound is crazy. And it's still in it. It's still in the modern, modern version of the theme. I was still very aware of those sort of stock BBC archive sounds, though, from sort of from the 70s that you'd hear across, like the thunderclap, which is replay, uh, repeated. A, a, a breaking glass that sounds like it was recorded in the 50s through a sock. Right. <laughs> and the machine guns of the Pertway, early Pertwee era were terrible because there were just guys holding guns, waving them a bit, and then they'd paste in some dreadfully disconnected machine gun sounds over the top that were completely awful and wrong. But apart from that, sound effect, this is my favourite period for sound and music in Doctor Who. The sort of eight or nine years around this time was when the music was... They were experimenting. They'd been highly experimental earlier, but they were really finding their chops now. And it was recorded well, and they had access to effects they didn't have beforehand, even on their tiny, tiny budget. But it was before it hit the 80s and went all a bit shit. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. Uh, one more question. Um, Pertwee polarises Whovians. To some, he's the quintessential doctor. To others, he's the sellout. Which other doctor would side with the military? What would you say to those who sit in the anti-Pertwee camp? I, I, you know, I would, I would say, for me, look, I'm, gonna, I'm the sort of the 
the peacemaker in Doctor Who fans because <laughs> I I don't I think it doesn't matter whichever Doctor is your favorite whichever ones you don't like the fact is that Doctor Who as we say a lot on this podcast has been so many different kinds of show and even the character has been so many different kinds of character that it's totally fine which ones you like and don't like there's something there for everyone and if you don't like Pertwee you can understand that because I actually came back to rewatch them thinking I don't think I like Pertwee that much and then I watched them I'm like actually no I do really like him I have that weird thing that I love Pertwee so much in a kind of like he was always on telly like it's like I don't I don't think I can watch it in a truly objective kind of way anymore there's a famous comment from Quentin Crisp who used to say that he could still watch silent movies and enjoy them because he could watch silent movies with silent eyes and people had lost that ability and I think in many ways I have that thing where I have pertwee eyes I just love it and people can point out these mistakes to me and I go yeah I guess that's true still think it's great like I just can't yeah I, I can't see beyond that. Yeah, I'm the same. Cathy? Well, I was just going to say, whereas, yeah, having to sort of fast-track back through the archive, for me it is nostalgic, I think, the previous ones, and it was like, oh, thank God we've got to the ones that are made now. Because <laughs> I actually wanted to keep watching them, whereas I kept tuning out of the older ones still, I think, coming back to them again now. Well, I think, it, I think one of the good things about Doctor Who in all its eras is that sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it's the opposite of brilliant. Um, I used the S word before, I won't repeat that again. No, I will. Sometimes it's a bit shit. And if it wasn't a bit shit sometimes, it wouldn't be Doctor Who. Like, the, the, a, a perfect Doctor, a perfect season just doesn't exist, and that's, that's good. And Pertwee certainly has his faults, but he also has his real strengths. And I think as, a, as an iconic figure of not just Doctor Who, but uh, of that time and television and Britain and empire, I think he's... He certainly shouldn't be dismissed. I mean, he can, he's a, one of the great things about Pertwee is you're right. You know, writers like Paul Cornell, you know, writes the new series, really react very strongly against Pertwee. But I think that's what you want from a doctor, someone who inspires passion, whether you passionately love them or passionately don't love them at all, passionately hate them. And I think Pertwee is one of those characters that will inspire passion. Just quickly, too, I was just wondering if you can answer this for me. I have, I have a question. Um, in terms of the advancements in technology and the whole sort of, you know, uh, special effects, where does this, that, this particular period sit? Like, is this at one of these really innovative times? Oh, absolutely. Sort of... right, this is, okay. yeah. Uh, the, the BBC had only really just gone into colour. And so the use of blue screen technology or, or colour separation over the CSO, as they called it in the BBC, because they like to rename everything for no reason. It, it, this is... Like, this is so groundbreaking, the stuff they're doing. And Barry Letts, the producer, perhaps loves blue screen a little more than he really should. And so he will do things like going, you know that scene in the kitchen? Let's do it with a slide. Her kitchen looks like it's the size of a hanger. I don't care. And, and you, get, um, you, get this, you do get some crazy attempts to make the technology things, do things it just cannot do. But the fact they're trying to do that. So, push it, so it really is pushing the boundaries oh, absolutely. with that stuff. And it's when they first start using a lot of uh, models with, with the CSO or blue screen, I, it's because I learned about it because I was reading about Doctor Who. So I've always called it CSO, and I had to learn that, that nobody else calls it that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so when you have the drashig come out of the, the mire or crash through the ship, that's a you know, model, a hand puppet that's been CSO'd in, so it looks the right size. And, when it, and some of it looks a little bit ropey, but when it comes out of the swamp, it looks amazing. And they've just slowed it down just a little bit. And it pops up and turns around and opens its mouth and screams. It's amazing. You know, so there's some great stuff. And I mean, then you get to 
Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And I love those dinosaurs. But even then, some of those shots actually work. Yeah, Just some, some of them, of them are, are terrible. But I mean, within an episode, it can go from being amazingly groundbreaking and brilliant to amazingly groundbreaking and terrible. Um, somebody actually on Twitter who was watching our, our homework list was watching The Demons and was saying how amazing the scene is where they, they burn a hole into the heat barrier so they can drive through. It's actually a garden trellis with tinsel on it that's got um, Vaseline smeared on the lens. That's all it is. It's fantastic because you cannot really work out what it is. Like you go, they're clearly going through it. It's not CGI. I'm not sure what it is. It's that innovative and imagination approach to it that no effects would be done like that now. And that's quite, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And almost, and, and no, no computer effects, like all of this stuff is, is practical either by manipulating the camera. I mean, even the CSO is, you know, it's very basic camera stuff that you're doing with the basic computer equipment. So it's really, yeah, it's really interesting and exciting. Some of the costumes too are incredible. Like the, 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 um, the lizard alien guys. Um, the Silurians? No. The Draconians. Oh, Draconians. Yeah, they have they great costumes. And the mutants, they, the, the mutts great. so fantastic. You know, they're, they're big claws and bug eyes and, and stuff. And one of the all-time classic is the, the giant maggot story, the, the green oh. death. You know, that the, the flying one doesn't look so great but the maggots were so iconic. Horrifying. Really, really amazing for people of our generation. We grew up terrified by these things, and and that's what Doctor Who was for a long time. So the second half of this we're going to talk about was family, and that partly comes out because of the unit family. Actual Chad sent us a message. I hope there'll be some talk about Mike Yates' arc with Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Planet of the Spiders. His betrayal certainly shocked me as a kid and added a lot to his character over others like Benton and Lethbridge-Stewart. Not counting the master, Yates is really the black sheep of the family. So what we have in Doctor Who, and this is surprisingly early looking back on it now, is having a, a regular character, member of unit, who after the Green Death, apparently is so affected by the, the ecological themes of that story, that he works with a group who end up basically trying to destroy the world, and is revealed as the shock kind of member of that conspiracy, because it's the 70s, so everything's a conspiracy. And then he's allowed to resign quietly and comes back in John Pertwee's last story in a way that redeems him. Watching that, because everyone sort of talks now about the sophistication of New Who, especially with characters and things like family like that, I'm often surprised looking back at these stories how much of that sort of storytelling is there quite quietly in a very sort of stiff upper lip kind of very English style. There's, the, the, yeah. there's that, and I think that, that wonderful nuanced portrayal of, of Yeats's arc is also present in, in the, the Doctor's relationship with the Master where you become aware that there's some kind of affection between them and a real history that draws them together and, and that the, the ability of Doctor Who to portray what could be just be stock characters in a very grey and nuanced way, it didn't shock me when I was younger but it was something that really drew me to this period because you don't really see much of that in Baker's period. People are drawn in particular ways and they don't change. Leela doesn't change, Romana doesn't change, Sarah Jane doesn't change, but, but Yates changed and, and our impressions of the master were encouraged to change. Joe changes as well. And Joe she, changes as well, you're right. She also develops. Mm. So it's an interesting period in that way, they, they do that. And you were putting out that it's a family, isn't it? It's it is. Distinct. I mean, that's why I thought this theme worked so well for Pertwee because up until this point, there's exactly, uh, well, there's two, there's only ever two references before Pertwee to the Doctor having a family, and that's that he travels with his granddaughter, and he mentions that his family sleeps in his mind when he's talking to Victoria in Tomb of the Sidemen, and that's it. He never ever mentions uh, his home planet or who he is. I mean, you never only ever find out that he's a Time Lord when he get, has to call on them for help, and he doesn't see like he only family's ever had are the people who travel with him in the TARDIS and then in Pertwee's era not only does he have to settle down in a place but he really seems to root himself 
in modern, you know, what was at the time modern London and modern England. Or he, near future London or England. Possibly. Yeah, or near future. Yeah. It's, we, I, the the, the no, policy no, no, of Spender Chaps is go, not go, to go, talk go, about the unit dating controversy. Sorry, no, go on. He really does, he puts down roots. He's like, I'm very comfortable here. And yes, he's always trying to fix the TARDIS and go off on adventures. But even once Pertwee's doctor has fixed the TARDIS and he does go on adventures, he constantly returns and comes back. It's like he's going on. He, it's it, it's kind of ties into what we were talking about empire. He's like a very uh, sort of uh, almost an aristocrat who's got a wonderful house and a family and people that he likes and hangs to hang out with. And he goes off on these adventures, like he's going on safari or somewhere to some exotic planet to find the fabled jewel of Metabellus three, and then come back so he can share it with all his friends and family. And that's really what the unit era feels like: is that he's made these friends and made a family out of his friends, which is really a very modern idea to have a family that's not related to you by blood and indeed in his case is not even the same species. Mafasoli, neo-tribalism. Mm-hmm. Say what? Bam! <laughs> can you unpack that for us? Uh, I can, yeah. Well again we were talking about the whole thing sitting post-war and uh, in terms of the, the breakdown of Europe um, but also of well, yes, mostly of Europe, I suppose, here and how it's going to sort of reflect in in Doctor Who, but also the well, the family breakdown as well, and of course, being made sick post sixties and in the sixties and after, um, you've got a society which is dealing with the breakdown of the family. Um, and so, anyway, there was an Italian philosopher called Mafasoli who, by about the mid nineties, coins this term called neo tribalism, and it's about how in sort of um, I guess the postmodern family unit, which has sort of destabilised how people make their own family units with friends and how much sort of friendship groups kind of form a thing called um, network sociality to a certain extent. And you can really see this in, in Doctor Who in the 70s, ones in the 80s, you know, and now it's all about people making um, connections with other people, very strong ones, in, in lieu of family. There's quite a change now, though, I think, and this, again, will come up much later in the, in the year, but uh, the new series seems much more obsessed with nuclear families in a way you've never seen mm. before. Do you think that's a change then, like, from the 60s to today? Well, I couldn't work out whether that was more to do with drawing in a slightly different audience. Because when I watched the... I mean, I remember the Rose ones um, when they uh, confront her family and her family do all the things you expect families typically to do, like, you know, don't go on the adventure, you know, stay at home. How long are you going to be out for? <laughs> all those questions, are, you know, that you expect families not to do. And before that, everything's very... Uh, it is very much, I mean, I'm going to say the male perspective, but kind of the boy's own adventure. And, of course, a little bit like, you know, the famous five and the secret seven. There's family is sort of peripheral. It's all about the kids out there, you know, tackling the unknown and, and, and the adventures. I mean, you don't want your parents around when you're doing that. So it's not until you get the Rose episodes. Um, but I do think it's fairly sort of traditionally female then. It's not the Doctor who suddenly has the, the very sort of traditional working class ordinary family or anything suddenly. It's very much Rose who is couched in those traditional because female things thing, as, a, as a child growing up in the country, my big thing, one of the reasons I love Doctor Who so much was it was a show where the TARDIS will come, it will take you away and you will never have to see your family ever yeah, again. Absolutely. That was always... A selling point. Yeah, you know, it's that, that real was... escapism. Exactly, yeah. and and it's like because um, uh, you know I'm a gay man, therefore I'm obsessed with the Wizard of Oz, and the Wizard of Oz. Uh, if you ignore that creepy bit at the end where she goes back to Kansas that makes no sense, is all about uh, a woman kind of getting out from this rut, from this black eye, moving to a colour world where she can be who she wants to be, and she creates this family, mm. you know, with the people around her, and. It always just, yes, yeah, so I mean, that was what Doctor Who was all about. And I actually went back trying to find out what we knew about family for the companions, at least. And it's so fascinating that so many of them, especially in the very early days, have no family mentioned ever. 
Um, Vicky has a dead mother and then a recently dead father. Dodo Chaplet has a great aunt who hates her and won't miss her. Um, Jamie had a father and grandfather, but we never find out anything about them. Victoria's father gets killed in her story. Um, Sarah Jane has an aunt. Joe Grant has an uncle. Uh, Tegan has an aunt who gets killed, an uncle and a cousin, but no mum or dad. Like, there's a sense of they're, they're kind of deliberately... If they need family, they've, they've put them in a reserve. Mm. And it's, I would have thought that's quite in keeping with the sci-fi genre, though, to a certain extent, isn't it? I mean, the idea of escaping from family. I'm well, it's in the keeping with, with a lot of kids' literature and young adult literature that uh, mm. the, the parents aren't there or they're kept at an arm's length throughout. But so it's the kids curious that it's that changed. That's why I find interesting. What's changed well, now? Well, I, I do think it's a gender thing, and I think, yeah. too, that now they know their audience isn't just... I don't know who they thought their audience was back then, um, but you know, now they know that, in fact, there's all these chicks out there that... You know, like Doctor Who too. Mm-hmm. I just think it's one of those things that by kind of giving the um, companion, by giving her a more kind of well-rounded structure, you are drawing in a different audience. So suddenly, from a point of my point of view, I'm completely involved in in this sort of much more female perspective and narrative. And I think and I think family is given to her because I think that is sort of let's say we, that's what we expect to a certain extent. It doesn't challenge it though. It's, in, it's easier, in, I think. As it well. is easier yeah, from a narrative yeah. point of view to give it to her. Yeah. They handle it very differently in the Pond era, particularly the the most recent episodes where the Ponds do get to go home, uh, but the Doctor's the one kind of coming back to them. I mean, they express at least once or twice that uh, they kind of wish the Doctor wouldn't come because then they can get on with their ordinary life, but they'll never stop going with him when he turns up. So it's almost like a critique of what's come in the past, of the of the companion being whisked away, their lives kind of destroyed like Sarah Jane's was until she came back. But I agree with you that there's there's quite a shift in the modern series depiction of family. So in the in the Davies era, I found when I was looking at it, uh, it's just all about how families are, are are just ruined. Like families have gone wrong. Yeah, that's so, an absolute breakdown. Yeah. Mm. And you and you see that, and that's true. You see that with Ace is a great example of that as well, where her family relationships, um, they talk about her mother quite a bit. Like she talks about how much she hates her mother, um, and then she goes back in time and meets her mother as a baby, not realizing who she is until the last moment, and. And she has this epiphany that actually, you know, I don't hate my mother. Like she was doing the best she can and it was really hard. And yes, it wasn't great for me, but I've got to cut her some slack. And, and she comes to that realization. And then we, but we still never meet Ace's mother. But that's an interesting transition we have though, because we go from, you know, maybe the 60s and 70s where these people are largely absent or they get killed, which starts the adventure in some ways. In that period, Turlow, we meet his father. Well, we found his father's been killed. We meet his brother. But at the end of their story, it's almost like the families are a revelation. The grandmother and mother comes in towards the end of Ace's story. And that's a bit like what happens in the Moffat era. So what I was saying about the Davies era is that it's all about these, these families that are crumbling. So Rose's father is dead and her mother is, is maybe... It's never entirely clear how great the relationship between Rose and her mother is. Sometimes it seems quite healthy. Other times they seem to be fighting all the time. Um, yeah, like most families, it's quite a realistic sort of uh, family unit in that way. But clearly her family's not quite right. And then she finds that sort of healed family unit more traditionally when she goes to the other universe and meets you know, the alternate version of her father and takes her mother there when the alternate version of her mother has died and sort of puts this family back together from bits. And then you see it kind of... And then you get Martha come along and Martha's family, like her parents are split up and they're fighting constantly even though they're not together anymore. Uh, and then, the, you know, she's critical of her dad's new girlfriend and that family just never works. But then they go through that year of hell in the alternate timeline with the master and they sort of make peace with each other and become friendly. And you're never quite sure because you don't really see them after everything gets reset, but you're not quite sure how that ends up. 
Uh, and then there's Donna, who has the most appalling story. Yeah, and I it's love so ghastly. Donna is an amazing character, like yeah. one of my all-time favorite companions, if not my actual favorite companion. Again, people ever. love or hate her. She's she's I, one of those characters that inspire a passionate response. I have I a theory her. about that, which we'll probably come back to in later on. But I think it depends on whether people have watched any of Catherine Tate's other stuff, mm-hmm. which I That's never true. have, and neither had I. And so. I really love Donna. Yeah. Um, and I think she's got yeah, because she seems to have this reasonable sort of you know a bit of a bickering relationship with her parents when she first appears and then when she comes back later and her father's died and her mother is this sort of domineering awful figure in her life who's constantly criticizing her decisions even though uh, you know unbeknownst to her mother she's opening up to all this new experience and going on adventures and she forms this relationship with her grandfather instead and then you know and that doesn't end well because of what happens to her she basically regresses straight back to the character before we ever met her that's right and it's this horrendous and she misses the guy she's supposed to be with too you know in the the second part of the library story yeah. doesn't she she get a glimpse of this person and is then sort of they're wrenched apart and yeah, nothing ever happens right. she has the most unhappy kind of family story in the modern era it just keeps going on and but on still it's and interesting on. that is it is the modern era ones that you know the domestic good or bad situations are very specifically applied to the women yes the, mm. to, that's true to the modern one. but that's also i think because the the series sort of settled down to this idea that the companion would be a, a one single female, like the Doctor and one female companion, which actually doesn't really start until Sarah Jane Smith. It's actually not even fully a part of the show. Like, it's, it's mm. what we, we believe the show to be, and we've almost retrospectively put that on the entire history of the show, when in fact, travelling with three companions, he probably did that for half of the original run. Well, yeah, or more even, and it's, and it's a real sort of how we imagine the show used to be kind of moment where people go, oh, yeah, the Doctor, he's like... It's like in that song by Bulla Makanka where they talk about you know, the Doctor, he's, his trusty mate canine and his beautiful assistant. And you're like, well, you know, sometimes he travelled with two dudes and a lady in the TARDIS, you know, like it's a... Or it was... It could be anything that's going on. He does have a lot of dudes these days. I mean, there's Captain Jack who pops in and out and there was Mickey for a while and then there's... um, Rory. Rory's dad and Rory. And then they've also established that outside the TARDIS he has strong relationships like with... Is it Strax, the Sontaran Doctor? Uh, So they're building... Moffat seems to be trying to build a sort of an elaborated version of the family across... But it's still very heteronormative. You know, people still have to get married or not get married and... also both both Moffat and and uh, Davies were coming in a period where they were basically building their own Scooby gang. Like I think modern Doctor Who is very much inspired by Buffy and that thing of having to construct a, a series of characters you can use. Uh, and in fact, in the second series, the kind of alternate universe stuff can only work if we know Rose's mum and Rose's dad. Like we need those characters in order to be able to have alternate characters yeah. of them. Yeah, you know, like they did that in the the Pertwee era because there were enough characters. They can do it now because there's enough characters. But it's not sort of in between. But I find it's weird that they start taking this whole family thing very seriously. They're trying to do serious emotions, and sometimes I think that perhaps does. It's hard. It's very hard to gauge in this kind of thing. You know, it's it's a a, a huge thematic kind of program. These aren't necessarily. These are often not archetypes mm. and sort of, yeah, And then trying to give them real characters can be difficult. And I think, in particular, uh, Amy having a baby and having it taken away, and then kind of that being okay, was something that I think yeah. clouded that series quite a bit. To go, no, no, she's lost a child, and you're trying to tell me that's okay. She grew up to be someone else. It's like that's. That's, it's uncomfortable. 
I don't think they're quite getting it right. Really interesting from a narrative point mm-hmm. of view. Yeah. But if you want to take those emotions seriously, this is still a woman who's had her baby taken away from her. I think it's a positive sign in some way, or it's a symptom in some ways of, of the progression in storytelling. So uh, it may not be something they're thinking of consciously doing, but I think it's something that audiences expect and productions expect of their writers, that we should treat every character in the show more seriously. And in some ways, this, this is helped along by Buffy, by Buffy saying what you could do in a long-running TV show with an ensemble cast to some real depth of characterization whereas before that point or uh, you know, over the run of Doctor Who, there, there really wasn't much of an attempt no, to no, do no, it's three-dimensional it's characters. It's completely linearly. You know? It's completely and, driven by plot. That's right. And they would try to do interesting things with characters, uh, like Turlow is an interesting idea for a character, somebody who's in the TARDIS who's not reliable, but there's no attempt to char- characterise him or, or make him a three-dimensional kind of person. That's left to the, the performer to do the best they can with fairly wooden I mean, lines. Nissa is a, is a character whose father gets killed. He's now this villain yeah. they keep meeting, and she's the only survivor of genocide. And I don't think you ever get any particular... Oh, Actually, it is interesting. Yeah. We haven't talked very much on this podcast about the, the audios and the books that came out from all this because we're sort of focusing mostly on the, on the, the TV. We will get to those probably you know, deeper later on. But it is interesting that one of the things I've spotted in the audios and the books is a lot of writers do want to go back and try and fill in those emotional storylines. They want to give... So there's a lot of uh, family shows up for these characters in these spin-off books, in these spin-off audios. And they also explain how Liz... What Liz went off and did. She gets several different farewells, doesn't she? (laughs) One is not enough. She must have many farewells. One of the interesting things is you write that there's, you know, the characterization wasn't necessarily deep or or nuanced in some ways in those days, even when you had a a familiar relationship. And really, the TARDIS crew operates as a family for a long time. And when people leave is when you see how deeply these characters care for each other, particularly when people leave the Doctor. Like when 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 Susan Susan leaves, leaves, it's heart-wrenching. When Ian and Barbara leave, even, it's really sad. Um, When uh, Liz leaves and nothing happens, um, it's... I'm not, I don't want to say it again, but it's like Dodo. But uh, The farewell to Joe Grant. I mean, there's the that wonderful moving is, scene where you so see sad. him driving off alone in the car. It's a very powerful moment. It's yeah. a wonderful moment. And a lot of the people who leave, and this is, again, this is sort of a female perspective thing and, and, and the way that they treat the female companions in the show, there is a startling number of them who leave in order to form a family. Like they just fall in love with someone... With no kind Slightly of pretext, randomly, yeah. You know, yeah. maybe they've they've met yeah. them uh, for four episodes, or even in some cases less than that. I mean, Joe's one is marginally plausible, although because she he's a clone of the Doctor, it's sort of foreshadowing what happened to yeah. Rose later, except less explicitly or revoltingly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's true, but and, and that but that's worth talking about as well because uh, and this is something we'll talk more about. We are going to do an episode that's about sex and romance, um, but. They, there is this shift that originally the, the TARDIS crew is very much a familial unit and the Doctor very much plays the part of the, the patriarch or the father or the grandfather figure. And then as you get to the modern era, particularly with Eccleston, it, there's a blurring of the, that line with Eccleston where is he more like an alternate dad to Rose or is he like her boyfriend? And, they, and they, in the Eccleston era, they constantly deny that they're a couple. They're like, no, we're not a couple. But in fact, even, it's even said, you know, that would never have been said in the earlier. Yeah, no one would even assume it. Um, they're they're playing with it all the time, I think, now. And with Donna as well. I mean, I love the mm. way it constantly came up and they both go, no way! But there's, there's, there's no father sense, I don't think, in the, in the later episodes. I reckon Matt Smith can occasionally pull it off. Well, I mean, it might be occasionally. He, yeah, no, because he's, he's... It's interesting with him because he's so great with kids. Like, any time you see Matt Smith 
with a bunch of children, it's magical. And even in the Moffat era, when he sort of removed family for quite a while, because you know Amy didn't have any parents, they were just gone. And then when they do come back, everything's magically happy, and you see them once, and then you never mention them again. Um, but yeah, it just takes that away. And yet he's really great with kids. He really makes a great father figure. And I think we're actually out of time to explore this anymore right now. Can we please thank our guests, Sean Williams and Kathy Abernick? Thanks for having us. So, quickly, we have two shows on next month for Tom oh, Baker. Seven years, so we're doing it twice. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival uh, in Melbourne. Uh, and we're going to be at the Trades Hall on the uh, evening of the 6th and 13th of April. The 6th is an earlier show at quarter to 6, and the 13th is a later show at quarter to 11. And you'll find all details at splendidchaps.com. If you're listening to this at home and you'd like to win a copy of The Ambassador's Death, all you need to do is listen to the podcast, get onto our website, and comment on the episode uh, three slash family. Let us know what you think or start an interesting discussion and we will put all the names of all the people who comment on the podcast into a hat and draw that out on the 13th. So you need to do that by the 12th of April. So our next two shows are about Tom Baker or four. Our theme is comedy because it's the comedy festival. Was there too much? Too little? Did it go wrong? What works? And it's the comedy doctor. Comedy doctor. better or worse. Uh, Because we are the only podcast with homework. You asked for it. We have chosen some stories. Petra, what's stories have we chosen? Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. For newcomers to the fourth doctor, we have selected Pyramid of Mars, The Talons of Wang Chiang, and Warrior's Gate. For the theme of comedy, we have The Romans, City of Death, Creature from the Pit, Paradise Towers, and Love and Monsters. To take us out this episode, we are very pleased to have Adelaide's own The Con Artists performing an a cappella version of the Doctor Who theme. And until next time we meet, in the final words of the first Doctor, thank you. It's It's good. good. Keep warm.
Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sandal and Bold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm.